Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Hi, my name is uh, Claudia Ruba. My wife, Rachel, and I have been attending Faith uh, for the past six years, and it's my honor and my privilege to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. Would you join me in a brief uh, word of prayer before we get started? Father, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you so much for um, this precious little book, Lord, that uh, teaches us so much about credible Christianity. And I pray, Father, that you help us to uh, glean from your word those things which you want us to know today. I pray, Father, also that your precious Holy Spirit will guard our hearts and minds and guide us, Lord, into your truth for us today. In Christ's name, amen. For the past few weeks, we've been talking about what makes Christianity credible, that is believable and worthy of trust. And to help us understand uh, what credible Christianity is, we have turned to a short letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Titus. And although it's only three chapters long, it is one of the hidden gems of the New Testament, because in this letter, Paul reveals one makes Christianity, Christians, and local churches credible, believable, and worthy of trust in their communities. And as a way of reminder, when Paul writes this letter, Titus is in the island of Crete, one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea. By the time of his writing, Crete has quite a few established churches, But these churches were dysfunctional in many ways. The Cretan society was corrupt and sinful. Their main god was Zeus, which encouraged its followers to engage in lying, deception, and immorality. Cretans who had heard the gospel and turned from following Zeus to following Jesus Christ, unfortunately were not growing spiritually and were not living godly lives in their communities. In many ways, they were just a reflection of the Cretan society in which they lived, and that put the whole credibility of the gospel into question. In other words, why should they believe the gospel when Christians lived no different than the average follower of Zeus in their society? Listen, people today are looking at Christians, they're looking at you and me and asking the same question. How different is the way that you live your life from the way that I live mine? In other words, what difference does Jesus make in your life? Is the gospel credible and worthy of my trust? Now, on top of Christians not living godly lives, the Cretan churches also lacked godly leaders. As a result of this void, people had claimed places of leadership in the churches who saw this as an opportunity for their own brand of Christianity to be taught, which was totally inconsistent with the teachings of the apostles. That's why Paul tells us in chapter 1 and verse 5 to appoint elders in every town where Titus, where the church was located, 
Last week, Pastor Joe reminded us that what the qualification of these elders and the character of these elders were to be. And I'm so glad that Paul did highlight these qualifications on his letter because they have served as a guideline. They have served as a criteria for choosing elders in Christian churches even till this day. And the primary responsibility of elders is highlighted in verse 9. Where Paul says, he, meaning the elder, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. That is unpolluted and pure teachings of Christ as taught by the apostles. And refute, he says, expose, correct, and even discipline those who oppose it. Those who spread or speak against and spread doctrines that are inconsistent with apostolic teaching. In other words, the elder was to be an overseer of God's work, to be mature and spiritually grounded in apostolic teaching. So the primary responsibility of elders, even to this day, is to oversee, to protect the spiritual health of God's people in their local churches. Sometimes encouraging them through sound teaching, sound doctrine, Sometimes correcting false doctrines that sometimes are propagated in the church. And we have quite a few of those that are constantly trying to, uh, be, uh, to be propagated in the church. Why is this, is this necessary? Why do we need elders? Why do we need elders? Well, it's necessary because as we will see in our passage in chapter 1 verses 10 through 16. Nothing is more destructive to the credibility of a local church than when something or someone disrupts the love, the peace, and the harmony of the church through ungodly behavior or through the infusion of false teachings. In Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, Paul says this. For, and that conjunction sort of ties things back to verse 9. Why do we need elders? We need elders because, he says, there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to the Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God... But their actions deny that they do. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, I'm sure that um, we have all experienced disruptions in our lives. Some disruptions are rather insignificant. Um, you're watching your favorite TV show, and all of a sudden the bell rings, the dog starts barking. You go and you attend to whoever's at the door, and by the time you come back, the show's over. Annoying? Yes. But it's not a disruption that's going to really have a lasting impact in your life. 
But there are some disruptions that are very, very significant, such as we experienced in 2020. To put it mildly, COVID became a disruptor in virtually every part of the world. It disrupted people's everyday lives, health, families, jobs, businesses, and even education and economic systems around the world, and much, much more. That was a very significant, life-changing, global disruption. But as we will see in our passage this morning, local churches are not exempt from experiencing all kinds of disruptions. Some disruptions in the church are the result of preferences and opinions. Maybe as you pulled into our parking lot this morning, today you had a hard time finding a parking spot. You finally found one, you parked your car, came into the church, and you were told that the venue of your choice was full and you needed to choose a different venue. That's not how you planned your Sunday morning church experience to go. Was that a disruption? For you it was, but it's, is it really uh, did, did disrupt the whole church? No, it does not. And it's the kind of disruption that, you know, you don't think too much about it unless it's something that happens uh, week after week and to a large number of people, then all of a sudden it becomes something that needs to be addressed. Now, some disruptions in the church also happen as a result of disagreements. People in the church disagree about all kinds of things. It could be about the type of worship music, versions of the Bible, political affiliations, and many, many more. And disagreements, when taken to the extreme, can become disruptions in the church. And obviously, that too needs to be addressed. But as important as addressing these kinds of disruptions might be, None of these were in Paul's mind when he opened, when he penned these words to Titus. Paul was concerned about the false teachers and the false teachings that were making its way into the churches and transforming people's lives into nothing more than a a mixture of what Christ taught and also what was being taught to them by the, um, these teachers. Now in verse 10 and verse 16, Paul highlights four things about these false teachers. First of all, he says they were rebellious. That is, they refused to recognize and submit to the teachings of the apostles. They must have figured out that since there was no apostle present in those churches, they would just fill the void with their own beliefs and systems and teachings. They were full of meaningless talk, Paul says. Their teaching, Paul says, was spiritual nonsense. No spiritual substance to their words, empty talk that leads to absolutely nothing and nowhere. He also says that they were deceivers. The Greek word he emphasizes the seducing of the mind. The goal was of these false teachers was to entice and convert these Cretan believers into a way of thinking to change their minds and thus fashion these churches after their own brand of religion. In verse 16, he also talks about them and he says, they profess to know God, but their actions spoke to the contrary. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, Jesus gave this warning to his disciples. He says, watch out for false prophets. 
They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves by their fruit. You will know them. You will recognize them. Now, these were the kinds of people that were infiltrating the Cretan churches. They spoke as if they knew God. They had the right lingo, but their actions gave them away as being phonies. And although the Cretan believers were being influenced by the society in which they lived, there was also one particular group that, uh, of false teachers that Paul seems to point to, uh, points out here in verse uh, 10. He says, especially those of the circumcision group. And he mentions them again in verse 14. Now they were called the circumcision group by Paul because they taught that unless Christians were circumcised, they could not be saved. In essence, they were saying that faith in Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not enough. In order to be truly saved, they were being told that they also needed to go through the rite of circumcisions and to obey the Old Testament laws and regulations. Now listen, anytime... Anyone adds any kind of effort to the work of, of, uh, that Christ has done, it changes the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, into a gospel of works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul actually very forcefully, in all of his letters, he mentions this uh, circumcision group and the, the, how they were destroying some of the churches. And he says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and then not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Our faith in Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to save us. Now think about it. If getting to heaven was based on works, I think heaven will be the most annoying place to be. <laughs> Everybody going around bragging about what they did in order to get to heaven. Can you imagine how annoying it would be to listen to Billy Graham tell you and brag about all the places where he had been and where he preached the gospel. And all the people that he led to the Lord. And all the books that he wrote. And on and on for hours. And making you feel like a spiritual midget. Well, think about this. Suppose that heaven was based on, your entrance into heaven was based on works, and all of a sudden there's this line of Christians, millions and millions of Christians lined up. The host of angels are all around them. And God says to the first group there on the front, he says, this group has done an awful lot for me, for the cause of Christ, and they earned their way into heaven. Let's hear from, from them here. And so each one of them talks about all the things that they did for hours and all the angels then rise and applaud these people. Then he goes to the second one and the same thing happens. And the third group and the fourth group. And they, then they come to your group. You're way back. And God says, well, these people didn't do a lot, but they're here. They're here. They made it. You know, but let's hear from them too. And now it's your turn. And you are, all of a sudden, you're able to think about two or three things that you did. And uh, there's complete silence from the angels. Then one angel on the back goes, way to go, Claudio. Now, God, can we go on with the program here? 
In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus says to the people who were listening to his teaching, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He was not saying that you need to do more works than the Pharisees were doing. He was saying you need a different kind of righteousness. The Pharisees were doing all the works. And Jesus says, you need a different kind of righteousness. Now, the question is, how do we get this righteousness that Jesus is talking about here? And Paul, again, uh, tells in one of his letters, 2 Corinthians 5 to 21, he says, God made him, made Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It has nothing to do with works. Nothing. It has to do with what Jesus Christ has done. And at the moment that a person places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know what happens? God says he places righteousness upon you. He puts it to your account that you are a righteous person. Not because you're perfect, but because of what Jesus Christ did. It's as if God looks at you through the life and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you are righteous before him. You know, another characteristic of this group, uh, of this group here, the circumcision group, was that they would fabricate fictional stories in order to convince people to become their followers. Now, Paul calls them Jewish myths, and he doesn't specify what these fictional stories were, but the, by the use of the word myth here, it helps us understand that these were made up stories. There's a practical application and obviously a warning for us as well here. As Christians who would love to see our loved ones and friends come to Christ, we need to guard ourselves against the temptation to stretch the truth of God's word or engage in telling stories that are not true or half true because we want so badly to convince them in some sort of argument that they should accept Christ. We are not to convince people into becoming Christians. We are to simply share the gospel with them. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul said this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and then to the Greek, the Gentile. Within the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is this inherent power. God doesn't need our convincing power to be able to lead someone to himself. All he wants us to do is simply to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel does its work with the help of the Holy Spirit to convinces, convinces and convicts people's hearts and brings them to himself. That's it. Sometimes we make sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people more difficult than it ought to be. We're not told to convince people. We're simply told to share Christ with others. Now, a third characteristic of this group here, the circumcision group, is that they try to control people with commandments. And Jewish rabbis and religious leaders had come up with, uh, come up with uh, uh, 613 commandments from God in the Old Testament, which, by the way, they couldn't even remember them all and couldn't obey them all, but insisted that their followers should. And if you're here today or online, and you just want to find out what life in Christ is all about, let me just say this to you. 
Jesus Christ did not come into this world to give you a set of commands, rules, regulations. He came to help you reestablish a relationship with your heavenly Father. He came to give us a fresh start with God. Amen? Amen. These false teachers were undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ and were disrupting the love, the peace, and the harmony of the church. That's why Paul told Titus to appoint elders in Crete who under the authority of the apostles could oversee and maintain the spiritual health and well-being of the churches in Crete and deal with these false teachers. But how are they supposed to do that? And for that matter, what is the responsibility of elders today in our churches, in our church, when it comes to false teachings and teachers in the church? In verse 11, Paul tells us that false teachers must be confronted and silenced. He says they must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. You know, in many churches today, their approach to false teaching is this. Smooth the situation and avoid confrontation. You know, smooth the situation. You know, don't rock the boat. That's like saying, I know that you've been bitten by a poisonous snake, but let me put a band-aid over it and you'll be fine. The word silence is interesting and an interesting word in the Greek. It carries the idea of muzzling a wild animal as you would a wild dog that could bite you. And Paul uses this word intentionally because he wants Titus and this the appointed elders to view false teachers as people who could do great harm to the spiritual lives of others. And he points out that the reason they needed to be silenced and muzzled is because they were ruining, upsetting, disrupting whole households. Now, we usually tend to think of local churches in terms of individual people, comprised of individual people. Paul didn't see it that way. Paul saw it as a community of households. Think about it. When you come to church and you hear the message in songs and in preaching of God's word, when you leave the four walls of this church, you go home, right? And if you have heard something new or something that has impacted your life, what do you do when you get home? Well, chances are you will talk about it with your family members. And guess what? The whole family is influenced by what you heard and experienced. And that's what Paul says. That's why Paul says to these elders, confront and silence, muzzle these false teachers. Don't let them continue to poison whole households with their false teaching. Now, I personally do not like to confront people. But during my years in ministry as a pastor, I had to confront people that were spreading false teachings in the church, uh, whether I liked it or not. In one particular case, we had to confront an elder. And yes, elders are not exempt from this command by Paul. This elder had embraced a false teaching and was trying to influence others. And in so doing, he disturbed the love, the peace, and the harmony of the church. And yes, he had even influenced whole households. He needed to be silenced. He was removed from the other board and stripped from his teaching responsibility. Eventually, unable to see how far his teaching had strayed from God's word, he ended up leaving the church. It's sad, but that's necessary sometimes. 
But Paul says here, silencing false teachers is absolutely necessary for the spiritual health and well-being of the church. You don't want the church to be contaminated with false teachings. But in verses 13 and 14, I believe that Paul shifts the focus of attention from the false teachers to those in the church that had been influenced by and had embraced these false teachings. In regards to them, Paul says, those who follow false teachings in the church must be rebuked sharply. Therefore, he says, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. The word rebuke here does not mean pointing your finger at them and saying, oh, you bad person, you shouldn't have listened to these false teachers. The word actually emphasizes the patient and yet stern and direct confrontation with the goal of showing them from, from, from evidence, the evidence of Scripture that they have departed from the teachings of Christ and of the apostles. The grammatical structure of this verb in the Greek also points to the fact that this is not a once-and-done deal. It's not that, you know, you confront them once and it's all done and over with. Okay, let's move on with the program here. It, is a, it has the idea of a continuous action. And it is continuous because it takes time, it takes effort, it takes patience to help someone who has been influenced by a false doctrine or teaching. And the aim of this confrontation, Paul says at the end of verse 13, is so that they will become sound in the faith. Sound in the faith. The word sound here emphasizes faith that is pure, healthy, and free of spiritual disease or contamination that comes from teaching that departs from the teachings of the apostles. So let's stop right here and reflect on what this means to us today. We must always be on guard, number one. We must always be on guard against embracing false teachings that can contaminate and weaken our faith. How do I do that? Well, one of the ways that I do that is think about it. We are bombarded with uh, preachers and teachers online, on TV, on social media, on podcasts. How do I protect myself from the things that I hear and make sure that uh, it's true. Well, first of all, I should ask myself how I feel inside about what I just heard. Sometimes we forget that as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit inside. And Jesus said, the spirit of truth inside of us will guide us into all truth. And so the spirit of God, it's almost like he flashes a red light in front of you and says, stop, turn around, hazard ahead. This is not the kind of teaching that is going to help you grow in, into godliness. Secondly, I ask myself, what does the Bible have to say on this subject? You don't have to have a degree in theology in order to be able to know what God, God's Word says. All you need is uh, your Bible and the determination to find out what it says in the subject in question. Now, suppose that maybe you don't know where to start. So what do you do? Well, ask someone you respect as a mature, godly person in the church or a personal friend of yours to help you find the answers to the questions in the Bible. So maybe you have some questions here today. Let me encourage you before you leave here to actually stop by the prayer room and talk to somebody about it. So we need to be on guard against false teaching that can, can contaminate and weaken our faith. The second takeaway from this passage is this. 
and it's an important one, we must honor and show respect to the elders of the church. As we have seen in the passage, the job of an elder is a serious and difficult one. And in, in one of his letters, 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, work in preaching and teaching. We are often encouraged, and rightly so, to, uh, to respect and to show respect to those who have served in the armed forces. And so when we see somebody, a vet or someone who has a uniform on, we, we usually approach them and say, thank you for your service uh, to our country. Uh, Paul is saying here, honor and respect the elders of your church. So today as you leave, if you know who the elders are here, and you see one of them, would you thank them for their service to this church? Or maybe you're online, right? And you're saying to yourself, or maybe here, and, and you're saying, well, you know, I, I'm not sure who they are. Let me encourage you to actually send an email, a card addressed to the elder board, and uh, just say something to the effect that you appreciate uh, their work here at the church. Uh, the encourage, they need our encouragement. They need respect and they need honor. Now, here's one last thing from this passage that I believe all of us should take away. And that is Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing. See, before we come face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we tend to think that we need to find a way to gain God's favor. And so we turn to religion. And there are many religions in the world. Religion is nothing more than a human attempt to want to reconnect with God. But no matter how good religion makes you feel, it never seems to do the trick. It always makes you feel empty. It makes you feel like that there's something else that you need to do. You, maybe you should try harder. And sooner or later, you just get tired of it. There's always a list of things that you're supposed to do. Listen, Jesus didn't come to earth and die on the cross in order to give you a religion or rules and regulations. He came to build a bridge between you and your, your heavenly father. He came to deal with the one thing that separates us from God, and that is our sins. He came to give us a chance for a fresh start with God. And maybe you're here today and listening on, or listening online, and you have come pretty close to that line many times. But you always back away. But today is different, isn't it? God is speaking to your heart and saying to you, you need to take that step. You need to go over that line, the line of faith. You need to accept my, what my son has done for you on the cross. Make things right with me. That's what God is saying to you this morning. Why not do that? Stop by the prayer room. Ask him to give you a, bad, a, a good explanation of what that means. And make that, take that step of faith. Receive Jesus Christ into your life more than anything else. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord to bless what we have heard this morning. Father, having leaned into your word, and now I pray that your precious Holy Spirit would guard our hearts and our minds against the attacks of the evil one. Help us to be constantly 
seeking to grow in our faith and godliness so that our faith will be sound and so that we would not easily be easily swayed by false teaching or false teachers. Thank you for the elders of our church who care for our spiritual well-being and strive to be sensitive to your leading and guidance. Help them also to continue growing spiritually. May their character always be blameless and their lives an example of what it means to be godly. Father, please be also with those in the sound of my voice who have never taken that step of faith and receive Jesus Christ into their lives, the gift of grace and the righteousness in their lives that you want to, that you are offering them. They are carrying all kinds of burdens upon them and it's growing by the hour. Let this day be their day of salvation, Lord. We pray these things in the name of our, your precious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.